Once you've written it, for the rest of your life, all you do is talk about it, especially in the months leading up to when it gets published. Which, of course, I understand. I mean, that's just a tenant of marketing, right? Creating buzz. And buzz is perhaps something of a descriptive and rather apt onomatopoeia when you consider how much of that is done online these days. So there are many authors who have taken this contractual requirement in stride, even those who have built entire careers on being ever ready to have a pithy response or a relevant thought. There are certainly writers who are quicker witted than I, who have taken to the concussive force of a Twitter feed or the collective hergblurg of Facebook. These are people that I admire because I am decidedly not one of them. The only places I felt somewhat comfortable would be the platforms that allow for passive participation and anonymous, detached, maybe even somewhat omnipresent curation. Tumblr, Instagram, Pinterest if I could remember my password. The stress of having to maintain an online presence, a brand if you will, has given me a particular kind of self-aware anxiety. And as I always do when things unsettle me, I reasoned that the best way to combat that anxiety was to gain a thorough understanding of the thing that scares me. So I hope you will join me as I go on a bit of a dive into the evolution of this strange beast in order to quell the very human anxiety that all my best days are behind me and no one managed to immortalize them in a vine. As I got started on this journey, I couldn't help but wonder what it would have been like to follow Sylvia Plath on Tumblr, or watch Thoreau live tweeting from Walden, or the Bronte sisters' enviable Instagram brand deals. Hashtag no net ensnares me, bitch. Now, you could certainly argue that the premise of social media does actually go back that far. Probably as far back in human history as you can go, really. But technology took whatever our natural inclinations to connect are and put them into an entirely different context. One that is instantaneous and far-reaching, which you'd think would have stood to make us consider more deeply what we say before we say it. But alas, it seems to have had the opposite effect because we are oafish and impulsive and want instant gratification and the approval of our peers. Maslow's revised hierarchy of needs dictates that we must, for our own fulfillment whilst we toil in the mortal coil, do it for the vine. In the early days of the internet as we've come to know it, so Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s, what really laid the groundwork for social networking sites were things like message boards and forums, which had their roots as means to communicate at the academic institutions that were developing and using proprietary software, hardware, and other computational goodies. Systems like Plato, which was developed at the University of Illinois, were specifically designed for teaching assistants, but were eventually tweaked and then mass-marketed as communication systems with much broader applications. Things like TermTalk and Talkomatic, the chat components of the systems, gave people a taste of what was down the pike and what they would have one day with AOL Instant Messenger. And Plato Notes, which was developed by then 17-year-old Dave Woolley in 1973, 
kind of set the stage for the bulletin board systems, or BBSs, of the following decade. So once people had the ability to communicate through these messaging systems and host some kind of space of their own within the vast expanse of the internet, it seemed like the inclination was not to broaden so much as to specify. Having a niche gave you a reason to exist on the internet, and oddly enough was probably the best way to stand out. Especially once you figured out that there were other people who were interested in the same weird shit that you were. Of course, in the beginning, these were mostly tech-centric because the weirdos using the tech were mostly the people developing the tech. And since these were also accessed via telephone lines and modems, meaning that there would be long-distance charges applied to any out-of-towners, it was kind of a big old techie circle jerk. And then in the 1980s, one of the most highly utilized in uh, business circles of these systems, which eventually would go mainstream, was CompuServe. Now, CompuServe basically allowed industry folks to access documents, news, and probably more than a little bit of gossip from other people in their network. The text-based conversations that emerged in the form of message boards and emails really set the precedent for how most of us communicate with others in our line of work today. Things like Slack. So that is to say, more around the digital water cooler than a physical one. Throughout the 80s and early 90s, BBS and early chat rooms shaped the experience of being on the internet. An experience wherein you are at times the curator of content and other times, or even simultaneously really, you are the consumer of content. As the underlying structure became more fine-tuned and higher speed, capable of supporting more data and more people, multiple BBSs could kind of hook up into one another. So geek islands were then becoming more like geek archipelagos. And for those of us who came of age in the 90s, it kind of felt like we hit puberty at about the same time that the internet did as our awkward adolescences played out in our AIM profiles and MSN Messenger, we perhaps shaped what social networking would become by the time we had our first MySpace profiles. Even before that, the gaming site Friendster became very popular abroad, and that popularity was maybe an important clue about what, what it was that people wanted from the internet aside from communication. They also wanted to find or create identities. What was interesting about Friendster and Six Degrees, and even It Just Won't Die, Classmates.com, is that these early platforms were all based in the belief that social networking online wouldn't work unless people had real-life connections upon which to build and nurture them. And this seems like almost an archaic line of thought when you consider how we use social media now, largely as a means to acquire a great number of tenuous connections rather than to deepen a few meaningful ones. I still find myself at times doing the sort of mental triaging of people in my social networks that would have been required in the creation of, say, a MySpace Top 8. If I want to really visualize who is important and who I want others to know are my priority in life when I am on these many hell sites, then a Top 8 would have allowed me to do that. In high school, that decision was, of course, at times agonizing, and often had very real-world consequences. There was a kind of social currency to it that transcended one's life online, and bled into the reality in a way that was not insignificant. And I often find it curious that people think that millennials, who more or less grew up on the internet, are careless about what they share, that we don't perceive the threats inherent to having a digital presence. I'd say it's actually quite the opposite of that. We have an inherent sense of that pruning that has to be done to maintain it. 
We have a certain intuition that allows us to foresee how something might play out online and off. If it looks like we're acting carelessly, that's only because we're able to react so quickly. What might at first appear to be a too casual attitude about social media, I would argue is simply a familiarity that means we just intone much of what those in the older generation have to be taught that they must be consciously aware of. Our brains molded and folded right alongside the Facebook news feeds and MySpace bulletins and Twitter threads. If it looks like we're not thinking hard, well, we're probably not. <laughs> not in the mechanical or practical way. Not in the sense of usability. We are, however, thinking about strategy a lot of the time, and there are certainly those who seem to have an innate talent for that. I'm not one of them, and I have no shame in that particular limitation. But I do regard it as a skill. A highly marketable one, in fact. I regard it as something worthwhile and necessary. Because in the world that we live in and work in, I don't think social media will ever again be just a hobby. It may become obsolete if it's replaced by something else, perhaps something that more deeply straddles the line between online and offline life, but we won't go back to a more primitive platform. We won't go back to lesser ways of communicating digitally. The almost holy simplicity of a GeoCities page is long behind us. I'm perhaps a little reluctant, uh, but at the same time resigned to this reality. I think where the conscious effort, the work, is really required for me is to give each platform a specific purpose and then control it as much as I can. There are some spaces that are still just kind of for me, and this is not only to maintain my sanity, but to constantly provide myself with an incentive to continue to engage online, even when it sucks. Where these two needs intersect, the proverbial sweet spot of social media, I have yet to fully establish. It may be that it doesn't exist yet. It may be a space that I have to carve out and then carefully guard. It may be that no such place could ever exist, or that if it does, it would be unsustainable. It may be really that social media is not meant to ever fully satisfy us. That if it did meet all of our needs, then that would mark the emergence of the black mirror dystopia that we all pretend is the future and not just lurking in the shadow of the present day. Can the history of social media then, a study of its rapid evolution, provide us with any insight in what's yet to come? Can it forewarn us or guide us somehow? I would hazard a guess that no, it really won't do much good. Because much of what exists today, across many realms of technology really, were only briefly imagined futures before they were wrought into existence, not even out of need necessarily. Actually, probably only rarely. We've become somewhat insatiable about technology. I mean, do we need a phone that's bigger or faster? Do we need all the bells and whistles, all the features? Arguably, no. But if we can create them, then why not have them? And what we have, and what we see that others have then, starts to convince us of our needs. And because we can then post about it on social media and everybody sees it and we see each other's haves and needs, then the cycle is perpetually fueled. The question then is, how is it going to move forward from here if it's on an endless loop? <laughs>